Wow, what a, what a passage. This morning we're going to continue in our celebration of the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. If you're new, we've had one already, Sola Scriptura. Uh, scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice, and the way that shapes the way we do Christianity. And, and today we're going to be talking about the second Sola uh, of the five, Sola Gratia. Now, before we do, I do want to give a bit of a uh, disclaimer. Uh, I meant to say it last time, but I don't want to say it here today. You know, while we believe it can be instructive to distinguish that aspect of reformational spirituality that is both biblically faithful and, and uh, relevant, even seeking to understand its relevance today as it was in their day, I think it would be uh, amiss if I didn't at least uh, speak into the issue that there, there was a controversy within the church. Brothers to brothers, uh, the Roman church and the continental uh, reformers, if you will. And in that sense, I think we need to remember that 500 years has passed. I agree with Jerem Bars, a professor of Christian studies and contemporary culture, quote, it is important that we do not merely endlessly rehearse the reasons as to why the Reformation took place as if neither we nor Roman Catholics have learned any more or changed in any manner since the 1500s. Likewise, I'm going to agree with Mark Ryan, again, professor of religion and culture at Covenant Theological Seminary. He says, there are real reasons to listen to each other, Catholics and Protestants, even learn from each other so that we might give better testimony to Christ by loving one another across our differences and to somehow get past lingering caricatures of each other's positions to find the common ground we share as we seek to bear a more credible witness for the Lord before the watching world. That is to say that that what I hope we don't do is enter into an adversarial tone here. Uh, There are real reasons, you see, to listen to each other, as we've said. And there's really two ways we can do this conversation. Uh, We should distinguish between those two. One way is we could be those whose identity is formed in opposition to something or someone else. For instance, Protestants in opposition to Catholics or Catholics in opposition to Protestants. Clearly, that's not what we want to do here. Don't mistake in it. The other position or, or posture, if you will, would be for Protestants and Catholics who see themselves as a renewal movement of the one holy Catholic Church, such as to see one another not as co-belligerents but as brothers and sisters in Christ, who have a common case or cause in the gospel. Again, we are not here seeking an adversarial relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. We are wanting to engage the scripture again, though, uh, because during, uh, in the context of our present demise, especially in Western Christendom, we're asking the question, if you remember that I asked last time, which is what, in the context of their own demise, What were the Sola Scriptures, the defining sort of spirituality that the Protestants were were seeking uh, to discover as a renewal movement? No greed. The real shame, if you will, of the Protestant Reformation was the shame of of that day that there was not a separation of church and state. Most of what we grieved the most, if you really were to whittle it down, was that this whole thing was happening within the context of a political discourse as well which elevates it into a political rhetoric, which elevates it in in the context of swords, uh, martyrdoms, and horrific things going on. 
Reformation, Counter-Reformation, both. And so I think it's just important to recognize that, that underneath some of the horrors of the Reformation, quite frankly, there was a renewal movement. A movement that was, was looking at its own day and, and the sense in which Christianity needed to be rediscovered. And we feel passionately, I feel passionately. I gave a lecture in the university over in Zambia, and I gave a, a lecture to this effect. Seeing Christendom emerge there, it was a lecture that tried to rehearse the history, all the way back to Augustine on, but rehearse a history that, that would rebuild the context there, that Christendom, that is a Christianity wed to the political, temporal powers that be, uh, always results in very horrible things. And yet it's also, in some ways, the source of the demise. As the church begins to utilize uh, instruments and powers and authorities and, and, and things that belong to a kingdom of this world in order to build the kingdom of God, and they just don't match. And the sola scriptures, I mean the, sola, uh, uh, the solas, five solas, they beautifully depict a Christianity that returns to a God-centered, God-dependent, God-sufficient way of spirituality and Christian faith. So that's what we're about here. And that being said, then, we're going to turn to the topic at hand, sola gratia. And again, we are taken back to an earlier conflict between Rome, on the one hand, and Augustine, who is now Bishop of Hippo and Gregius, which is now Anabai, which is in Algeria. And this conflict that emerged, for by the end of the 4th century, 396 CC, Augustine had already advocated that people were innately sinful, we call it original sin, and desperately depended upon God's unmerited grace for salvation. He wrote that in Ad Simplicianum in uh, 396. At about the same time, the British monk Pelagius, now teaching in Rome, at the time, began to circulate a diametrically opposed doctrine of human nature and the viability of free will and human responsibility unto salvation and sanctification. He had just published on the possibility of not sinning, quote-unquote, arguing that that justification follows perfection, a doctrine that, as you'll see, will emerge again during the Reformation Rome as well the one that that inspired what we call sacerdotalism. Uh, That is, this idea that, therefore, that perfects ourselves. There is a power given unto the church and its rites and its rituals. Uh, There are things, there are temporal curses that are put upon us that can be relieved by temporal means, which led to many of the abuses uh, in that day. But underneath it is a theological system what's known today as Pelagianism or an offshoot of that semi-Pelagianism versus what we're seeing here in the Reformation. So therefore, according to Pelagius, since a primary feature of human nature was described as the innate capacity to do either good or evil, the possibility of, sinning, of not sinning for Pelagius was very real. Full assurance of salvation was therefore unattainable until one was perfected. Augustine's response was strong and bold. Augustine was to say that from the start in his, quote, on the, on, on predest, on the predestination of saints, end quote, that was a book in response or a treatise in response. 
on the predestination of saints, he said from the very start, it's God. It's God's will. It's God's power. God's sufficiency. Thus it began in grace. And then on to the finish where he wrote the gift of perseverance. Where again he argued from beginning to end in these two treaties. We begin in grace, we end in grace. It's not perfection, it's perseverance in faith by which we attain, by which we may have assurance of salvation. By faith, based on grace alone. According then uh, to Augustine, salvation because of God's absolute sovereignty. And this is where a theme emerges that I wanted to preface with before we look at that passage. He had rediscovered with this passage and many others how it is that goes so sovereignty, so goes grace. Let me give you a little warning as we go to this text. We are now post-enlightenment, rationalist. We like to fit things into a logical, finite mind. That's not always so logical. And we will be tempted to import questions on this passage that are not even conceivable in the days of Moses. We're positing this issue of free will and God's sovereignty, but in within a rationalistic system of how they come together. We will start to see the story of Moses arguing with God, and we'll think, what's going on here? Is, is God's mind changing? Is man changing the will of God? We get into all these pedantic conversations. We need to look at it fresh. For God is revealing through a divine drama, Jesus Christ. If you were to read that passage that we heard read just a moment, and if you were to put Jesus Christ into the place of Moses, you would be astonished to see how John wrote his gospel so carefully. And so did Matthew to tell you that Jesus is the Moses of God. Whether it be through a transfiguration of Christ, like another transfiguration of God and the divinity of Christ being exposed. Whether it is John 17 and the intercessory prayer of Christ that almost mirrors the kind of things that we hear Moses talking to God about. You will discover that this is a divine drama, hearkening back to the promise that was revealed in the sacrifice made for Adam and Eve and wrapping them in the clothing of righteousness that they might not be shamed again. And a drama that goes through Abrahamic covenant, promising to, to Abraham the good news, not the bad news, the good news that your salvation's not going to rest on your backs and the backs of your, of your legacy, Abraham. That I choose... We read that in our rationalistic system, and it's a front to our human independence or sovereignty in our own right. The Enlightenment gave us a sense of humanism, which is a, a, a kind of arrogance about humanity. And we read that story as a threat to our humanity. But if you read it as those who, who like they were and should be convicted of their sin, who you, who you can't imagine that now God, who is holy, could possibly be present in their midst, and yet you have to have God's presence in order to have salvation because there's no power apart from presence. If you read it that way, people, and you hear God say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, phew, praise God. Please, I beg you. Don't read this story like a rationalist. Read it like a redeemed soul saved by grace 
through faith alone. And hear the good news. And so there we go into Augustine. Sola gratia, or grace alone. Sola gratia for Augustine, contrapelagianism meant grace at the start, grace to the end, grace in the middle, grace without fail, grace without mixture, grace without addition, grace that allows no boasting, grace that precludes all glory, but in the glory of God. Amen. All false concepts of grace would seek to eliminate at least one of those three, those four or five clauses that I just gave. But the Bible's gospel stands firm. Unless grace alone is understood in this manner, humanity will always have some room for boasting, but likewise will never find assurance. For even if one link of the chain of the order of salvation is broken, and we know that we are broken, then our chain of assurance is broken. And off we go. Off we go again then to the 16th century. The issue emerged in a way that led to the Protestant Reformation. Rome's continual alliance to what was at the time a a kind of semi-Pelagian position served as a theological justification for its sacerdotalism, which means a salvation that is tied to all sorts of works-based laws, but specifically regulations and rules and participations in the, in the rites and rituals of the church. There was this thing called indulgences where money could be exchanged for these super grace chips, if you will, that the church had been given according to the church by Christ. So that now the church held in their own possession things that could be bought. And you can see where that would go. And so the Roman Catholic had not... Uh, even And they had adopted all this stuff in the Council of Trent in December 4, 1563. What is an indulgence? It means that Christians could receive temporal punishments for sin, even after its guilt and eternal punishment has been forgiven by God. Now you think, oh, I'm so glad we don't live like that. Listen, people, to what we say sometimes. How we will interpret a temporal event like a car crack that God is mad with me. How we will interpret things that happen in our lives as if I'm not related to God by grace. I'm related to God by works. There's a re-emergence of a kind of semi-indulgencism, if you will. I know I make up words all the time. And, and this, this, this thing is rampant right now. Rampant. I hear it in evangelicalism in the most hip kinds of places. This, this notion that somehow there's a works-based relation to God, even if we say over here that we're saved by grace, but over here, even in the temporal realities of our life, we work and live as if we live by works. The Roman Catholic Church had a treasury composed of the, quote, superabundant merits of Christ and the saints, which the church, through the exercise of the power of their keys, could transfer to the benefit of those who are due these temporal punishments. You say, well, we don't hear that anymore. Really? Just listen to what I hear on TV. Listen to what I hear even in this city. And many brands of Christianity, where it is in effect promised, if you come and give this money, God will prosper you. Or if you will come and do this and that and this and that, God will, you know, now, 
it's true. Doing good things has a benefit. It's equal. It's a win-win. It's true in a lot of these things, but it goes further than that. And so that's what they were dealing with, but in a horrible way tied to the, to the union of church and state. And so this semi-Pelagian position undergirded much of the grievances that the Reformers uh, had in their return or rediscovery of Augustine's position against Pelagius, but more importantly, of course, is the Scripture, Sola Scriptura. So, for instance, in defiance of Rome, Martin Luther insisted, if any man, I'm quoting, if any man ascribes salvation, even in the very least part, to the free will of humanity, he knows nothing of grace. I think he meant by that experientially. And he has not learned Jesus Christ aright. You see, throughout every history, every religion, almost every religion on the face of the earth, And many Christian nominations confess the necessity of grace. Rome, then, as now, confesses the necessity of grace. Grace by faith in Jesus Christ. That was not the issue. The Mormons concede to that. The Jehovah's Witnesses concede to that. Islam will concede to that. I mean, on and on it goes. It's not about the necessity of grace. We all know and believe in the necessity of grace. The question of the Reformation was the sufficiency of grace. Is it enough? Is it grace plus? And so we turn to Exodus 33. Words and time could not do this passage justice. I'm just going to say it quickly because when I get into it, I'm just going to give you the drama. I'm just going to tell you the story. But just remember the promise God made to Adam and the figure and the image of clothing Adam with the grace of a sacrificed, substitutionary uh, sacrifice on his behalf that he might be declared righteous with Eve again after their great fall. Remember the promise to Abraham as you heard read earlier. Remember that this is part of a history, exposing and revealing and unveiling who is this seed of the woman. This whole passage in Exodus has got Jesus written all over it. We see a divine human interaction. God ascended into heavens. Moses descended upon and in the lives of the people going into the heavens in in prayerful intercession for the people. What's going on? Why? What's what's the context? You hear the incredible argument where Moses appeals to God and his character, but he says, God, reveal yourself. I need to know who you are, what you are like, before I can concede to take this great faith step. How can I believe you, Lord? Who are you? Reveal your glory. And we're told it's not the glory of physicality that God reveals, but it's the glory of his nature, his character. And only then will Moses and the people rejoice. And at the heart of that character is, I am who I am, Moses i.e., I'm not who I am contingent on anything that anyone does, says, period. 
I am who I am, the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. Father, come speak into our hearts where every man, woman, and child is sitting in that room. Speak into their hearts that they might truly aha in this sermon as to the greatness of your grace because of the greatness of your sovereignty. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we're in this passage caught into the midst of an amazing drama. A drama wherein we see that, that, that uh, God has in miraculous ways saved them from Egypt. These are the people that saw firsthand the great miracles that saved them. And now there's this great event where Moses goes up the mountain of Sinai to receive the law of God, a law that was good and beautiful, a law that would define who God is in its first half and who humanity is in its second half and the way in which we would treat one another in a manner that would be utopian if for once we would ever keep it. It was a beautiful law. And you remember Moses comes down off the mountain and the people are in revelry dancing around a bull, a bull for fertility's sake, doing prostitution to to arouse the bull, seeing it even as an extension of their worship of God, no less. And the broken tablets and the anger and the offense of God. And then in chapter 32, we hear this great curse Again, the the breaking of the tablets and and God saying, you are a stiff-necked people. Now you're thinking, did God mean that? Yes. But God is sovereignly at work to reveal more about himself than just that he's a God of, of wrath, justified wrath, the creator of the world, being rejected and being flaunted. He's more than that. And so we enter Exodus 33, and God has relented. And the Lord says to Moses, go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants I will give it. In other words, God's not going to be unfaithful to what he promised Moses, Abraham, even if he says, and I, a gracious endeavor at that, mind you, listen to this, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Ammonites, etc., etc. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm like that commercial I saw the other day where the kid walks into the family room, and he's scared to death, and he's doing this, and he says, uh, Mom, you know, I've checked into our insurance, and we, have a, we can get a new car with a, if we ever wreck our car back. Y'all seen that movie? I mean, this is what I would have been doing with God, you know, or that little commercial. And, and then the mom just says, four weeks. Okay, he's just, thank God. I'm not killed after wrecking this car. Well, the people had a very interesting response. When I first read this, I remember the thinking, phew, they got off easy. He's still saving them. He's sending you one of his own messengers to protect them. Good news, man. But look what happens. He promises to send the angels before them for protection. And when the people heard this, these harsh words, they mourned. 
At first glance, it would have seemed that it was good. The utopian promise reestablished. But the caveat is, I will not go up among you. Now, if you've been studying the redemptive history, you've learned that when God is not present, even the covenant is insufficient without God's presence. Even the great document, the legal treaties, if you will, that God had established with Israel was not sufficient to save apart from his power. He didn't just need the paradigm, it needed the power. It didn't just need the message, it needed the, the presence, the efficacious power of God. And they weren't buying it. Good theologians that they were, they weren't buying it. Oh God, no, man, this is horrible news. You're not going with us? And we've seen then from the beginning this divine presence synonymous with the divine blessing and prosperity. That benediction presence of God that he had put upon the people was worth killing for in Genesis. It was that precious, that presence of God. And so we turn to verse 3 and 5, where then God determines not to go with them, for he says, you are a stiff-necked people. He tells them the reasons. If in the single moment I should go among you, I would have to consume you in my justice. Describing in what sense God had been willing to cohabit, if you will. And for Moses, this was like taking away the only security that Israel had. It was the pillar of cloud lifting off the temple. It was horrible. And therein, we move into this incredible drama of intercession. Moses goes out to the uh, tabernacle of meeting, the temple of its day, the, the transient temple, what we'd call the church. He goes to church, that place where God promised to meet with them when they choreographed themselves according to his rules in a manner that we walk through the gospel with him. And that's what the temple worship did, just like we did today and during today. He went to church, and he begins to pray. First, he, he's there, and he says, When Moses entered the temple, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the temple, and the Lord would speak with Moses. See, the Lord, even though the people had rebelled, the Lord was with Moses. He favored Moses, we're told. Remember, God, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, the, the, the parallels are unbelievable. His argument basically was to appeal to his nature and his promises. He appeals to the promise of God to inhabit Israel, and you don't break your promises, God. He appeals to God's nature. And then... The conversation continues, and he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I, your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, and your people from every people on the face of this earth. Request, what's he saying? He's saying, God, you got to go. God's response, I will do. I mean, it's just abrupt. I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight. Moses, the intercessor. Moses, the one, the human, divine appointed mediator. God has anointed him in his office to mediate between himself and the people in a way that would transact a salvation to these people that they didn't deserve. And you I have found favor. That is a huge word, benediction. I have put my blessing on you, Moses, to do what you're right now doing, interceding for your people. You remember Moses, I mean Hebrews, speaking of Christ, 
who intercedes for us with a sympathy of a human. This is Moses, the Moses of God. And so we have God agreeing to Moses. Everything is right. Everything is wrong. Phew! Big time dilemma alleviated, right? Not yet. Moses, I don't know, man. Are you setting me up, God? He's, he's not believing it. Now, you've been there, right? You've heard the grace of the gospel, and you're going, I don't know. I mean, I mean, seriously, I know how bad I am. And so what does he say? He could have, I thought he would have said, thank you, God, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. You know how you kind of do? But he says, I mean, the audaciousness of this. Now, God, will you show me your glory? What's that? You see, the dilemma, after what God had already said concerning the condition of the people, how could Moses trust that God wouldn't consume the people now that he's promised to go with them? I mean, God can't get it right no matter what he says to this guy. I don't go, they're upset. I do go, you're upset. We got a problem here. What is it about you that I can trust God is what he's saying here. What is it about you? Give me some assurances here, would you? And the assurance that God did not give was, well, Moses, you did really good, and, and you know what? I'm going to just take that for the people doing very good. And, oh, they're really nice people. You know, compared to the oldies, Hittites, they're, oh, they're a lot better than the Hittites. That's not what he said. What he said is, is just jaw-dropping, really. Very patiently said, Moses, I will. But listen how he says it. I will make my goodness pass before you. Well, that's interesting. Why? Glory is what he asked for. Goodness is what he got. The glory of his goodness. And will proclaim before you the name I am. There's no better description of God than that. That's why it's the most sacred name in Jewish and Christian history. I am Yahweh. I am. Which means... Everything that it seems to make you feel like. It's a feel word. I am. I exist. I am. I am what I am. I am. No one. I'm the first mover of all things that move. I'm, I am. I am it. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. He then continued, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And he gives him the instructions about how to do that. And that sets up this great event. Though Yahweh does indeed come to Moses in a theophany, if you will, a, a, a kind of a physical manifestation, what he gives to Moses is quite sufficiently not the sight of his beauty and his glory, but the meaning of his character. Indeed, he pointedly denied. He says, he says that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have grace on whom I will have grace. And of course, you heard Romans describing this very scene. When in his day, he's proclaiming the goodness of the gospel, which is that the gospel does not proclaim on anything you say or do. It's not dependent on you being a, of the lineage of the Hebrews or the Gentiles. It's depending on grace and grace alone, the very passage we read today at Confession. And when the people say, oh, I don't know about that, that seems unfair. I mean, how could some people who were of the lineage of Hebrews not be chosen and others be chosen? And that's when Moses says, man, guys... Wake up. 
There is no grace if it's not God and God only. So you've got to choose. Your humanism that wants to boast of itself and futility for ourselves are not perfect. Or your redemption and that you can boast in God. God's character revealed in his mere good pleasure to show mercy on whom he will. In other words, their salvation, the utopian promise, is not ultimately contingent upon their works, their decisions, their power, their ingenuity, their manipulation of the gods, but in God's own sovereign will and the pleasure to be himself as expressed the redeeming of people. Romans 9. I don't have time to rehearse it. So what's happening here? I had to do it really quick. (laughs) Oh, it just doesn't do justice to what we just did. Hopefully I set you up to see it, though. You see, based on this passage, Exodus 33, sola gratia means Christ alone for our salvation. Rest on grace alone. I mean, I'm sorry, grace alone for our salvation, resting on grace alone for our assurance. Here again, sola gratia. Listen to the scripture, brothers and sisters. Let it sink. So then it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, that is empowered to do this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God alone. John 1.12 For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. But notice it's been given for you to believe in him. A gift. For by grace you've been saved through faith not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God not as a result of works so that anyone can boast. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Romans 11.6, we read this morning. Again, every religion in the world practically speaks of the necessity of grace where there is a personal God involved. That's not the issue here. It's the sufficiency of grace from beginning to end and everything in the middle. And the Reformers understood this deeply in the context of the demise of Christianity in their day, where the power of salvation had been delivered to the state and to the church acting under the power of the state in a way that that could not bind the conscience, really, even if outwardly they did. Today, we need to discover not the synergistic relationship between God and man and salvation, but the monergistic relation between God and man and salvation. Synergistic meaning there's more than one agent involved. Monergistic means there's just one. Regeneration. We don't, do you believe in order to be regenerated? Then that makes your belief a work. Do you, are you regenerated, made a new nature? In order that you might believe, therefore your belief is a free gift of God's grace. That has been a debate. On it goes. I hope that you will read at the very beginning of your, of your bulletin, I lift the, the way that our confession of this church, so his, you know, of course the legacy of the Reformation and the Westminster, 
But I give you the shorter catechisms that I hope and pray you've taught your children or you're teaching your children, as we encourage us to do. And you'll notice they all, the order of salvation events, these things that have to happen in us in order for us to be saved, we call it the order salutis. You'll notice that, that everyone, by God's mere free grace, as a work of God's free grace, a work of God's free grace, as a work of God's free grace, and it goes from beginning to end, it's all a work of grace. In conversion and evangelism, if we believe in synergism, we will then see church and our music and all the things we do as a measure, as a kind of tool to manipulate you to make a decision. That's happening everywhere right now in the rise of evangelical brand Christianity. Where in the spirit of a revival, the pastor and the musicians and the bands function like a, a kind of instrument of the Holy Spirit to convince your will to make a decision. This is not a denomination that does that. We believe that if you faithfully preach the gospel to those whom God has called, it will be irresistible without manipulation. It will be irresistible without manipulation because their natures would have been transformed by being born again in order that they will see the gospel and then all they have to have is an understanding of it and they'll go, I want it because of what God has done. It makes all the difference in religion. And I'm going to be so bold to say, I'd say 80% of American Western religion is semi-Pelagious in this regard. Just anecdotal my point of view. Don't quote me on that. I don't know. Maybe it's less than that. I hope it is. It feels like that. And it, it works for a while. It works. That's conversion evangelism applied to the first order of salvation. Then you get to justification. How is it that we can have assurance? The semi-plagious view will say that you don't have insurance until you're in some ways perfected. We say you are given assurance by grace through faith alone, and then you are perfected. Big difference in the way you raise your children as covenant children. To say to your child, by grace through faith alone, presuming the faith that they have given by their own, by even their just being in your house, the first step of God's choosing them into your house, into a covenant community, the presumption that they are Christians awaiting confirmation to be sure but a confirmation that comes first on the assumption of God's ordaining them into your home and into this church to raise them as Christians, presumably. Not under the fear of going to hell, but motivated by the love of Christ to follow after Christ. Big difference in the way you raise your children. Sanctification and legalism. The moment you have sanctification and tied to works, you go to legalism, which means rules upon rules upon rules to try to save me from myself. You see, where there's more insecurity, there's going to be more rules and policies, right? Christianity becomes a legalistic religion. Dotting off a check mark so I can feel some artificial sense of God's with me. Sanctification. Perseverance versus perfection. Oh, praise God for that one. How our confession, if you go back and read it, will describe that even saints for a season can go horribly astray. But somehow, in the mystery of God's grace, they come back. How would you know if you are having assurance? Because I'm sitting in this room and I have faith in Jesus Christ. 
I'm not examining my works, I'm examining his works. And I'm persevering and putting my faith in him versus myself. From beginning to end. Well, listen. I wished I had a couple more hours. But we got this meal, and it's graphic. Behold, Moses. Right there, Moses. Everything we read. Directing you to that table. The Moses of God, Jesus Christ. Who satisfied everything that we might say. Sola gratia. If you're here today, and you're wondering about Christianity, I hope you will hear nothing else. If you want it, it's yours. If you want it, it's yours. Receive it. Just take it. Say, I want it. Come, talk with me or any pastor in this church, and let's help root and ground you in what it is that you just said. We'll do it in a 30-minute conversation if you want. And receive Christ your Savior, joining his church. If you haven't been baptized, you'll be baptized. If you have, you will profess faith and join yourself to Jesus Christ where you come under not rituals and rites that save you, but rituals and rites are a means of grace in order that you will continue to walk by grace through faith alone and persevere in that grace. You need that desperately. Please come. Let's pray.